going to talk to you today about anorectal emergencies. And before I can actually start talking about this, I think it's really important for everyone to understand that, you know, a person doesn't just like go out and say, wow, I love anorectal emergencies. I think I'm going to go make a lecture about it because I just <laughs> love butts so much. Um, so and anyway, one of the things that sometimes happens in our lifetimes is that someone gives us an opportunity and it may not be quite the opportunity that you would have designed for yourself, but in fact, it turns out to be a good one. So my chair, Dr. Hochberger, um, was one of, he is, one of the editors of the Rosen textbook. And way back when I was an assistant professor, he said, hey, I've got a great idea. Would you like to write a chapter for the Rosen textbook? And I was, you know, like all excited because, you know, whenever you're first in academics, you're just sort of looking for something to grab onto. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. He goes, well, I have two choices for you. You could write a chapter on anorectal emergencies or schizophrenia. <laughs> so, you know, here I am. I'm like, okay, heads or tails, odds or ends, and, you know, you can continue to think about all of the choices that I had. And as you can see, I chose anorectal emergencies because I just didn't think that I had the personality that could lecture to you this many years later on schizophrenia. So today we're going to be talking about... Um, all of the different anorectal emergencies and by the end of today I'm gonna hopefully you all are gonna have a really good approach um, to taking care of patients with these sensitive conditions. Um, these are, does everybody have one of these little papers? This is a copy of this um, slide and it's a follow the, follow the slide type of thing. So basically what you do in the beginning is you ask a question. Does the patient have pain? So if the patient has pain, then you go over here and you say, does the patient have bleeding? If the patient does have bleeding, is there swelling? Yes, there's swelling, so they have hemorrhoids. Um, you could follow it down any other pathway and arrive at the answer of what their actual anorectal diagnosis is without even having to think further. So it kind of follows a history approach where you can learn what is wrong with the patient just by following the chart. So in general, just sort of the caveat of all of this is hemorrhoids can be the answer to any of the questions um, because they mimic so many of these diseases and sometimes are accompanied, um, accompanying many of these diseases. So you can always diagnose hemorrhoids with any of the symptoms that are here. And furthermore, hemorrhoids are the thing that people know happens down there. So most of the chief complaints are, I've got hemorrhoids, whether or not they do. So just kind of keep this in mind and you have your little pocket guide there. Okay. <coughs> okay. All right. What we're going to do is kind of go through a case approach so that you guys can practice managing this and practice using your little, your new little cards there. So this guy is 46. He has pain and bleeding with his, um, in his anorectal area. And this happens while he's defecating. So his past medical history is negative, he's a heterosexual, you know, he just drinks maybe like a couple beers on Saturday night. He likes to sit on the toilet and read the sports page. 
Um, his vital signs are normal, and everything is normal except his anorectal exam. So where should we go with this? Okay, so he's bleeding. What do we ask next? Swelling. Is there swelling? <laughs> so let's see. Um, yes, there was. <laughs> Oops. Um, he has some swelling. And what ends up happening is that he has some hemorrhoids. Hemorrhoids are a very important part of medical history and of normal history, too. You can read back even in the days of the Old Testament where a deadly panic had seized the whole city since the hand of God had been very heavy upon it. Those who escaped death were afflicted with hemorrhoids, <laughs> and the outcry from the city went up to the heavens. In more modern history, they say that the reason that Napoleon was actually defeated at Waterloo is because he had a hemorrhoidal flare-up. <laughs> um, hemorrhoids, many people think that hemorrhoids are simply um, engorged vessels, and that's not actually the case. Back in the 1970s, there was a lot of research about hemorrhoids and what they actually were. And a guy named Thompson decided to make this the subject of his PhD thesis. And what he discovered was that hemorrhoids are actually enlargements of three anatomical features of the anorectal area called the anal cushions. So there's three anal cushions, and when they get um, swollen, then you get hemorrhoids. So this is um, composed of submucosal tissue. So there's some mucosa, there's a little bit of muscle, there's a little bit of vessels in there, and all of these things together um, are supposed to act as little pillows for a couple reasons. One, whenever you're ready to go to the bathroom but the toilet is not there, it would be really, really inconvenient if everything just sort of plopped out whenever it wanted to. So these cushions are kind of like speed bumps a little bit and slow things down. And it kind of um, cushions the canal so that there's not turbulent flow. I know, it's hard to stand up here and say all these things. <laughs> My favorite place to do this is at ASEP, and then I have like these, you know, hundreds of people in the audience and I show these pictures and I talk about this stuff and they're like, oh my, <laughs> kidding me. And um, you know, so you see the whole room of people just like putting their hands over their eyes. So, you know, if you want to do that, that's cool, but trust me, it's, you'll, you'll get used to talking about all this stuff. Okay, um, just the last thing from that slide was the hemorrhoids are not varicose veins. So that would be one of the take-home points of what a hemorrhoid isn't. Um, so every time a patient comes in with any kind of swelling or any kind of problem about their anorectum, oh, doc, I have hemorrhoids. So whether or not they're actually hemorrhoids is for you to discern but almost all the people think that that's what they have. Um, the way that you could diagnose hemorrhoids is that there's some painless, usually, blood that comes out into the toilet bowl. And I'm gonna qualify that as saying, well, sometimes there can be pain, but that's when the hemorrhoids have progressed to a point that there's a lot of difficulty. They might be engorged, they might be thrombosed, and then that's a completely different um, diagnosis. These are just sort of hemorrhoids that are inflamed and they're, you know, causing some bleeding. And sometimes when the pain happens, it's because the hemorrhoid comes out through the sphincter and can't get back in. So all the blood collects in there and makes it get more and more swollen. And the pain arises from pressure against the sphincter. 
and that's how come they have pain with those kinds of hemorrhoids. Um, when you have someone who has an anorectal complaint, um, you have to be extremely sensitive about the exam that you do. And you don't want to be examining them out in the middle of the emergency department. Um, you want to make sure that you close the curtain around them or close the door. And even, well, maybe women a little bit more than men, you know, if you can drape them in sheets so that the only little thing that's open is the little space that you're looking at. And um, so what you should do is, you know, look with your eyes first and see if there's anything wrong. Uh, you can see things wrong with their skin. You can see things that don't belong there. You can see any kind of trauma that may have occurred. And um, you can note the presence of blood or pus or dried feces or other things without even touching them. The next thing that you can do is with your finger, you can touch the sphincter area and just apply a little bit of pressure. That'll cause the sphincter to relax and then your finger won't get like squeezed to death whenever you try to do your rectal exam. Um, and then, you know, the next thing you'll do is the 360 degree sweep um, of your rectal, uh, looking for any kind of swelling or, you know, feeling any kinds of masses or firmness or identifying anything that you can see. Um, anoscopy, I mean, we all talk about it. Um, I suppose it's okay to do if you are really looking for a hemorrhoid that's, you know, right there and trying to rule out causes of um, bleeding from up higher. but if people have a significant amount of anorectal pain, the last thing that they really want is to have this big old hard piece of plastic shoved up their butt. So, I mean, most of the time, what I really need to know, I can't see on an anoscope anyway. So I'll send them and refer them so that they can get sedated by somebody in GI or surgery and they can just do the full-on flex sig or a colonoscopy. Just kind of keep um, that in mind. Yes? Oh, it's just like hyperemia. There's a lot of collection of um, blood in there and everything stretches and then inflammatory response occurs. And so same as if you sprain your ankle, you get swollen. They get swollen in the same kind of way. Okay. And they hurt when they swell. And they hurt when they swell because they press against um, places that have sensory receptors. The hemorrhoids themselves have no sensory receptors um, up there when you can't see them. But I want to talk about two different kinds of hemorrhoids right now. Um, there's external hemorrhoids and internal hemorrhoids. The thing about the external hemorrhoids is you can tell the difference because they look the same as what's surrounding them. So these are little bulges that look exactly the same as the skin that's surrounding them. Whereas internal hemorrhoids have a different appearance than the skin that is surrounding them. Now this person, unfortunately, has some engorged external hemorrhoids that you can see here, and these almost thrombosed internal hemorrhoids that have prolapsed. Um, how do we classify them? We classify them based on where they originate. So the dentate line is the line where the epithelium changes in the rectum, in the anus, you know, the, um, from columnar epithelium to squamous epithelium. And the blood supply is a little bit different. It comes from up higher, more proximal in the internal hemorrhoids, and more distal in the um, external hemorrhoids. <coughs> so um, 
that's the reason that they look different because they originate from different places. Uh -oh. The internal hemorrhoids look like bowel. They, they do look a little like bowel, um, but they're still a little bit more mucosal and um, a little bit more vascular than if you just pulled out a piece of the intestine. Okay. Um, if you have someone who has an, a thrombosed external hemorrhoid, then what you can do is you can excise the hemorrhoid. So the next thing that I want you to actually super remember um, about the lecture is that if you have pus, you IND it. If you have a thrombosed external hemorrhoid, you excise it. And the reason for that is if you IND that, you pull out the clot, then the skin edges are going to fuse together and you're going to be left with a uh, perianal skin tag. And that's going to serve as a nidus for future infections, irritation, itching, feces will get stuck on it and it'll be a mess for the person. So if you just go ahead and excise the whole, um, you know, this whole thing right here and just pull the clot out, you can pack it a little bit and that will um, enable you to, you know, pack it, let them go home. 24 hours later, you can yank it out and they can um, take a shower and you don't need to repack it after that. So the next thing I want to talk to you about is what I call the wash regimen. So what we're going to do is we're going to wash these pains away and wash away all of our anorectal problems. It's a little mnemonic that stands for W, water, A, analgesia, S is a stool softener, and H is a high fiber diet. So W, what do you do to get rid of hemorrhoids? Well, you should not be constipated. So by drinking a lot of water, then you won't be constipated anymore. And when you get them, you want to keep the area clean and you want to reduce the sphincter tone which when they have um, done studies they show that the sphincter tone completely relaxes at 140 degrees Fahrenheit so if they take a warm shower um, maybe not quite that warm but a warm shower then they can relax the sphincter and maybe those thrombosed hemorrhoids will just reabsorb the clot or if they're internal hemorrhoids they'll shoot on up where they belong and so that's the W component. The A component is analgesia. You can use a topical anesthetic on any anorectal complaint, but only for about two days. Otherwise, it will cause some skin breakdown. So these are your preparation H or with the hydrocortisone, the anusol, HC. All of those things have lidocaine and they have some steroids in them. And what you can do is you can give them to the people and um, alleviate their pain for a day or two. But you don't want to be using it a long time because the skin will break down and make their pain even worse. S is a stool softener, makes it softer to pass by those engorged anal cushions. And um, H is a high fiber diet, which will bulk up the stool more so that it's a little bit more pliable as it goes around the corners there. So talk a little bit about first degree hemorrhoids. Um, this is probably the longest part of the talk because this is the thing that we see the most. So going into a little bit more detail here with the um, hemorrhoids. First degree hemorrhoids are usually painless and they might show you some blood on your toilet paper. It's kind of like, you know, they wipe or they see a drop or two in the toilet. So have you ever put one drop of blood in some vessel of water? 
It makes the whole thing look like it's totally blood, right? So if they get one drop of maybe like five drops of blood in the toilet water, they look in the toilet water and like, oh my gosh, I'm bleeding to death, what am I gonna do? And so really, it's not all that much blood, um, but there is a little bit of bleeding. Um, usually, what happens is that the hemorrhoids protrude into the anal canal, and there's a sense of fullness whenever they're trying to defecate. The stool might be hard because they're constipated. It scrapes the anal cushions, and therefore it causes them to bleed. Second degree hemorrhoids, um, external hemorrhoids, um, these prolapse actually out your butt. So if you were to have like a little movie camera there and you had second degree hemorrhoids and you were going and they came out when the poop was coming out and then when you stopped your Valsalva, they'd go right back where they belong, okay? So that's the uh, second degree hemorrhoids um, and you can usually just treat them the same way with the wash regimen. Third degree hemorrhoids prolapse during defecation, but after they're done, they just stay there. And the person themselves usually figures out that they can push them back in. Because if they don't, what's going to happen is it's going to turn into um, like a lot more pain. And so they're, because they're going to get hyperemic and swollen and maybe thrombose. So if they shove them back on in there, then that'll make them feel better. And finally, fourth degree hemorrhoids are permanently prolapsed. You can't push them back in. Maybe a clot has formed inside them that's so big that you're just like pushing and pushing and pushing and they can't go in. You can't make it happen. They can't make it happen. And kind of like the worst outcome for that one is that they become gangrenous. So you want to refer them to surgery before all that happens. I love it when I walk in the room, introduce myself to the patient, shake their hand, and then get a history that they reduce their yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why we have like our hand hygiene, you know, we wash our hands before and after every encounter. Okay, um, I have to tell you about my children's warped childhood and strange life ever since I started the anorectal emergencies. When we go to the zoo, we don't take cute pictures of little animals cuddling with their mommies. We find animals that have their butts to us and we take pictures of their butts so that I can separate the topics of my lecture. My daughter's in college right now and she went to the San Diego Zoo and um, she sent me a picture, you know, like, hi mom, you know, here's a picture of me doing something I like. No, my daughter sent me a picture of a zebra butt. <laughs> so anyway, the next case, um, this is a case of someone who has sharp, did you guys take the, there's some new people. So, um, some sharp pain right around their anus and it bleeds and while they're defecating it really, really bleeds and then there's this nagging burning. So, um, they have painful bleeding. Um, this particular condition, what do you guys think this might be? Sure. Or do you have any more questions for me based on the little flow sheet? Um, no, not particularly any swelling. Who said fistula? No. <laughs> but it starts with fis. Fisher, an anal fissure. So um, this is an anal fissure. Somebody who has intense pain that occurs during defecation. And what this generally is, is a hard piece of feces that actually cuts the skin as it goes by. 
So um, this is the most common anorectal complaint in children, like pediatric, especially babies, um, if they're not having like an inosusception or something or something that's popping out like that, but sort of the most common basic problem that they have. Um, the things to remember about anal fissures is that in normal people who have them, they occur in the midline. Okay, so midline is going to be important here for a lot of anorectal things, but this is the first one. Anorectal, um, a fissure occurs in the midline in usual people. Um, if they are off the midline, you want to be asking them questions about other underlying conditions because for some reason, people who have TB, cancer, syphilis, leukemia, you can read, um, their fissures tend to be off the midline. And um, you're going to ask me why, and I'm going to say, I don't know. They just are. Um, so we always want to ask the questions about their past medical history. And we might be able to diagnose someone's systemic problem based on their anorectal complaint. Um, it's called a sentinel pile if you have um, a sentinel pile is if you have a fissure and then it gets edematous and then it shrinks back down, then what's left is a skin tag. But because of where it is and what caused it, we call it a sentinel pile. And people who get that, um, here's what it looks like. Kind of a little bit like a, um, this is the fissure. This is not on the midline. But this is someone who had a fissure before and they have the sentinel pile. Um, the way that we treat this, again, is with the wash regimen. And um, what we would like to try to do is we would like to get them not to be constipated. And we'd like them to relax so that they're not pushing quite so hard. Um, these are people who, if you see one that's not in the midline, that you're going to refer them for future, um, you know. So anusol HC would be yeah, anything that causes pain, the Anusol HC, the important thing about that is about two days is the limit of where you want to use that. And, you know, it isn't really going to do anything to make it better. It just makes the patient feel better for those couple days while their body heals it as much as possible. Okay, this person has pain without <coughs> bleeding. So on the pain thing, there's no bleeding. He has a lump that's near his anus, and it's been there for about two or three days. No bleeding, no urgency. He's a heterosexual male, but look, he's got a little fever. Not much. Vital signs are otherwise stable. What do you guys think is wrong with him? What could this be? Abscess. It could be an abscess. What else? If you look at your little, little thing, what else? Could be a pyelonidal cyst. What else? So he has a lump. It's swollen. It doesn't really hurt. Could be prosedentia, which is like the where the rectum comes out. Lots of little things cause swelling. So what we're going to do is um, we're going to. Um, look about the most common one, which is the anorectal abscess fistula. So the next important thing for you to remember is abscess fistula is a continuum of the same disease. So you don't get an abscess or a fistula 
First you get an abscess that maybe you knew about or maybe you didn't, and then you get the fistula because if you're the abscess, what you want to do is you want to get to the outside world. So wherever you are as an abscess, you're going to send out this little feeler, which is the fistula, to connect somehow to the outside world. Maybe it's into the anus, you know, into the GI tract. Maybe it's straight out to the skin. Maybe it's into the intestine somewhere in the colon. Maybe it's into the peritoneum. Wherever it is, it's going to be sending out these little networks to try to drain the abscess. Um, so the most famous two people um, about anorectal abscess fistula disease, Hippocrates was the first one to diagnose these and had a lot of writings, which I just kind of omitted here, but you know, spoke a lot about people who were afflicted with abscesses and fistulas. But the most famous patient in um, more modern times was King Louis XIV. And um, does any, anybody here, a history buff, know wh why Louis XIV was an important person? in history. Well, I think he's an important person. He's the person who invented ballet. So, yeah. And he even has a step named after him. It's called the Royale, after the royal person, because he was so fat, which made him more prone to getting an anorectal condition. And instead, you know, have you seen these guys? They beat their legs together like 43,000 times before they land during their jump. Well, he was so obese that he could only get off the ground and change his feet one time and so they named that step after him don't say you didn't learn anything important today <laughs> all right well an abscess is the acute phase of the disease a fistula is the chronic phase why do people get abscesses and fistulas it's kind of like when you get zits except that zits are usually on your face or somewhere in that general area and anorectal abscesses are in that general area so the ducts become plugged and then it just swells inwardly. Um, if you have somebody who has an anorectal abscess or fistula, you want to be thinking of the underlying medical conditions that are associated with that, and those are listed here. And I'm just going to say right off the bat that HIV is in the differential diagnosis for literally everything that you would see with anorectal conditions. Um, okay. This is a picture of somebody who has a juicy abscess and this would be a perirectal abscess, um, aptly named since it's right next to, it's actually a perianal abscess, but we usually just call them perirectal abscesses. Um, if it's fluctuant, it probably has some pus inside and you can go ahead and IND this in the emergency department. Um, very satisfying because you feel good because you make pus happen and they feel good because they get rid of their pus and the swelling and the pressure are all gone on their, um, tissues that are pain sensing. Um, if you do this, you need to anesthetize very well. Well, you know that you can't anesthetize and stick a needle into an infected area or an area with cellulitis, but what you can do is you can inject sort of around the, um, around the place. And the problem is pus doesn't have nerve endings, so you don't want to put the needle into the pus. You want to get it down under where the pus collection is and go around the periphery. So if you go in in one place and you kind of, uh, you know, underneath it, just like any other abscess, um, then you want to make either an elliptical or a cruciate incision, like a little cross. Take your little Kellys or something and deloculate, 
and stuff it full of the iodoform or just plain packing gauze. Leave that in place for 24 hours. Tell them, hey, guess what? Tomorrow, while you're taking a shower, you can yank that stuff out and throw it away, and that'll be the end of it. Come back if you get a fever. We don't need to treat um, abscesses with antibiotics, same here as everywhere else, unless the person has a really under, bad underlying immunosuppression disease um, or if there's a lot of surrounding cellulitis. Okay. So I wanted to just show you where all the different types of abscesses are and why certain ones are better or worse than others. So the one that we just looked at is the perianal abscess and see how close it is to the outside world. So this one is the one that just kind of made a little thing that went out into the anal canal there and that's how it drained. And you could feel that little bump on a rectal exam if you wanted to. Um, so the, if you had to have one, you'd probably want this one because it's the s closest to the surface and least likely to cause a systemic problem. If you had to have another one, the next most well, I don't know, this is kind of not going in a good direction um, to talk about which one of these you'd want to have because I don't think you'd want to have any of them. But anyways, if your patient came in, your patient would rather have this one than any of the more proximal ones. This is an ischiorectal abscess and um, basically this one often drains right out the, the butt skin. So you can see that it's a little bit deeper than the perianal abscess, but it's not so deep that you can't reach it. Um, if you find one of these, you may have someone who has a fever because by the time you find what it is, it's had a chance to get a little bit more juicy. If you want to confirm the diagnosis, you can stick a needle in and suck out the pus before you IND it. Or if it's really fluctuant and ready to be drained, you can just drain it. Um, and what ends up happening is when you're trying to decide where to IND this, if you go as medially as you possibly can, then if it has, um, if it tries to make a fistula later, it'll try to make it from that incision spot. And the closer it is to the uh, rectum, the easier it'll be for draining the next time. All right, so next we're going to move on up to an inner sphincteric abscess. This is the one that's between the internal and the external anal sphincters, so this is probably a little bit worse. Um, sometimes if you do a rectal exam on this one, what's going to happen is you're going to feel a big bump and you're going to wonder, oh gosh, they have a hemorrhoid. Why do they have fever? Um, why do they have all this pressure? Why do they have an increased white count? Well, if you're in that dilemma, then you should get rid of um, hemorrhoid as your diagnosis and go to this one. Uh, if you find out that they have adenopathy and fever and leukocytosis, this is probably your diagnosis. And this isn't one that you can drain from the emergency department. You will have to call your surgery friends. And lastly, um, the superlevator or post and post-anal abscesses, these are the ones that are so high up. They're just um, above the levator muscle, above all the sphincters. And these are things that are maybe some intra-abdominal problems that you have someone who comes in with abdominal pain, NOS, and you're like, wonder what this could be. And then you get a CT scan and you find this um, abscess. So they're very rare, but if you find one, um, it's a lot less of an intense surgery than if somebody who needs to have like a colectomy for you know, some diverticulitis or something like that. Um, a fistula, like I mentioned before, is the chronic condition associated with abscesses. And if the key thing to remember about fistula 
is don't probe it with some long pointy thing because that'll maybe make a break in the tube and then it'll make a new abscess network. All right, why do we have Jeeps? Well, we're gonna be talking about pilonidal disease and this is the World War II Jeep driver's disease. So I want you to kind of close your eyes and think back a long time ago in World War II when they had Jeeps and they drove all over these bumpy roads in the Jeeps and it was really hot in all these places that they were and they were on this hard chair because they didn't have the nice soft padding and as they went over the bumps without springs they just went up and down like this and there was all this sweat that was forming and there was all this other stuff that was kind of a problem and just collected all this infectious tissue in the midline of their um, sacrum. So, oops, uh-oh. I would imagine that cowboys do get this too. Um, but the Jeep drivers got there first, so it's Jeep driver's disease. Um, this pilo, pilus, is a Latin word for hair, and nidus is nest, so this is the, a little nest of hair. If you've ever opened one of these up, you'll notice that it's filled with sort of like chunky pus instead of runny pus and hair. So maybe some old skin tissue. Hi, Carl. <laughs> um, and so basically these, these are in the midline, predominantly in males greater than females and young people rather than old people. There's this huge debate on how to treat them. And some people advocate that like you excise their entire sacrum. Um, and other people just advocate that you treat them symptomatically until they're about 40 because there is one benefit of getting older, this disease goes away. So if you wanna look around the room, well, there's nobody here because I usually look before I ever say this. But you know, have you ever seen these people who are unibrow people? And they've got more hair like right in the midline of their forehead than the rest of their eyebrows? I bet you that they've had a pilonidal cyst. You can look at them next time and go, <laughs> I know all about you. Um, if we're gonna remember one thing about pilonidal cysts and what we're gonna do about them, um, when we excise them, we are not going to cut in the midline. Okay, when we excise a pilonidal cyst, we're gonna make a vertical incision lateral to the midline. And why is that? Because the last thing you wanna do for somebody who has midline issues, it's like their midline crisis, you, you just don't want to add more scar tissue to that area for them. So excise, or IND it with a longitudinal incision off the midline. There we go. Um, the next condition that has the same old um, swelling and it's an infectious disease is hydradenitis separativa. Do you guys know where else you can get this? Like another body part? Armpits, yeah. So hydros is Greek for sweat and aden is Greek for gland. So this is a disease of your sweat glands. And um, if you have a patient who has this, some of the questions you wanna find out about their underlying diseases would be things like diabetes or smoking. And you just sort of treat it like any other abscess and um, looks a little bit different because it's anatomically not really next to the rectum, but it's kind of like in that 
general area. All right. There's nobody here who's a type A personality, right? No doctors are ever type A personalities. That's a good thing because if you were a type A personality, you would be more likely to get Proctalgia fugax. So I love the name of this. Um, anyways, this is someone who has intense spasms in their rectum that just, like they just can't stand how painful it is. And this is the most common in professional people, um, perfectionists. We probably have none of those in the room. And um, the treatment for this, this is like intense pain. They have intense pain and they're like screaming. And you know, it's just like my butt hurts and there's nothing there, okay? <laughs> so um, they've probably figured out that if they get some like very close friend to take their fist and press up against the muscles that the pain is alleviated. Like if you get a friend like that, keep that friend. <laughs> um, and the other thing that often works is um, Valium or some other benzo. Um, like it's such a bummer because the most common time, two times when they get this is immediately following intercourse or in the middle of defecation. So, like, talk about ruining the mood, huh? <laughs> All right. This is the picture I just got from my daughter. Isn't it? I mean, we always joke about it. It's pretty sad. It's like, Mom, I got another butt picture for you. I'm like, All righty. Case number three. This is somebody who has painless rectal bleeding. So look on your sheet and find out, um, what do you think? This is a 78-year-old woman, and she has, sometimes she has blood um, during defecation, and she lost 10 pounds in the last three months, and her physical exam is normal except for her rectal exam or her anoscopy. So what does she have? She only has one thing, she has cancer. And if she doesn't have cancer yet, then she has a precancerous polyp. So older patients who have any kind of rectal bleeding in the absence of pain or other diagnosis, you really have to start thinking about cancer in them. What do you think that this patient came in complaining of? Hemorrhoids. hemorrhoids. Yes, because that's all that people know about. So if you thought she just had hemorrhoids, then you probably would have treated her with that wash regimen and that would have been a problem. <coughs> all right. The next case is painless swelling, but this time there's no blood. So what do you think this could be? It's a two-year-old little girl, and she's, the mom says that there's this big lump in her anus. Um, she had a normal birth history, and um, when you look at her, there's this big red lump. What do you think that could be? So there's no pain, it is swollen, there's no blood. Um, it's probably covered with mucosa. <laughs> so the next question that we want to ask is does this thing itch? Well, you know, you can't really ask a two-month-old. But in some people, you might get the answer yes or no. 
And if it itches, it's possibly condyloma acuminata. This could still be present in a two-year-old or a two-month-old. And if you found condyloma around the rectum of a baby, what two diagnoses or what two things would you think that caused that? You, you see the patient, there's this two-month-old baby with condyloma, genital warts. What, what caused that? Okay, three diagnoses. Maybe the mom had it at birth. Child abuse. Or maybe the caretaker just doesn't have good high hand hygiene habits and the caretaker just spread it because she has it or he has it themselves. Um, so you wanna like raise the red flags about child abuse, but you don't wanna condemn the family you know, and then you can ask, well, hey, do you have this too? And then they're like, wait a minute, I'm not the patient, but that could save them from the whole child abuse workup. Um, and if it doesn't itch, it's probably procedentia, which is another word for rectal prolapse. So this is a picture of a rectal prolapse. Um, this happens at both extremes of age, and this is where your butt comes out, like your whole rectum or a part of your rectum, incomplete is some of the layers, complete is all of the layers, and um, this is the rectum coming out. Um, what would you guys do about this if you saw this in your ER? So like when stuff is out that doesn't belong out, then we should just like make it go back in, right? So there's a special way that we're gonna make that happen because we don't really wanna go sticking our finger through it because then we could get a bowel perforation. So sometimes if this has a lot of edema, what we can do is we can soak a piece of gauze in some hypertonic solution, so like a sucrose type of solution, and wrap it around there, and then we can sort of gently, after a little while, make it go back in. Um, we're not gonna use like our pointy fingernails, you know, maybe get that friend again who likes to stick their hand, their fist up the proctalgia fugax butt and try to urge it to get in a little bit like that. And if you can't do that with minimal difficulty, then you should consult surgery and they'll probably have to have an open reduction. Um, this is the picture of the condyloma acuminata, the genital warts. And if you have someone who has this and they don't really have a good reason for having it, you should refer them for HIV testing because it's probably one of the first um, infections that HIV patients get um, you know, on the skin as a telltale and that might be the way that they get diagnosed. <laughs> yeah. All right. The uh, next case, the person has discharge coming out and they have anal, perianal itching. So there's like about 42,000 causes of um, foods and different things that cause this type of itching. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna just kind of um, speed through here in a little bit more quickly. This guy, if he has a 20 pound weight loss and he's a homosexual male, um, what are we gonna think that he has? So he, yeah. And um, the other thing is, you know, anybody can have poor anal hygiene and get itching, but we wanna kind of um, decide whether this is somebody who just hasn't been washing their butt very well, 
or if this is someone who actually has proctitis and that's the infection inside that's you know kind of all oozy on the outside causing some skin breakdown and some problems. So let's talk about the one that if you had to choose one you would rather have. So pruritus ani is a more common thing in men than women. Um, they often have some foods that make it more likely to happen. So something that's really, really um, spicy or something that has a lot of um, different kinds of um, compounds like caffeine, well, you can read what they are. If you um, apply the topical hydrocortisone cream for too long, like the Anusol HC, then they'll get this pruritus and then you can't really put the Anusol HC on because it'll just make it worse but some people do anyway, and they think it's gonna make it better, and so that's another problem. They could have a systemic disease. Um, renal failure sometimes predisposes people. Um, people who have diabetes or thyrotoxicosis um, and some vitamin deficiencies lead to this. Um, children especially might have like creepy crawly things that are causing the perianal itch, especially when you look, if there's no feces that are like plastered on there, but you might see that they have these little pinworms. So you can do the tape test where you just get a piece of tape and you put it along the perianal area and you pull it off and you look at it and if they have pinworms, these little wormy things just kind of hang down. Um, and so there's a couple of different medical treatments that you can give and that's in your handout, which I finally emailed to you this morning so you can pass it along to everybody. Um, all right. Um, proctitis, um, this is the most common cause of proctitis is gonna be people who have HIV disease. And this is, a proctitis is just an inflammation of the rectal area. But the most common causes of that are actually gonna be infectious diseases. So before we go on, I just wanna say that this is not an HIV lecture in which I'm gonna tell you every single cause of um, proctitis that's way beyond the scope. Although in your handout, I've provided you the most current MMWR recommendations for treating people with proctitis. So the handout is complete. The, the talk, that would just like drone on and on for too long if we did that. Um, so syphilis is one of the causes um, one of the things to remember about syphilis is that it can look like a million other diseases. Um, this first stage of syphilis, um, what ends up happening is you get a chancre, and this is a painless lesion. So people often don't even notice that they had it if they aren't in the habit of like looking at themselves. But it's a, a highly infectious time, and if they have intercourse during that time, then the spirochete can get passed along. Um, a lot of times if they're infected with syphilis, they're gonna get one of those anal fissures, but it's not gonna be in the midline. Um, then secondary and tertiary syphilis, you know, that's also possible that you wanna be looking. And here's another one where you don't wanna be shaking their hands whenever they come into the emergency department. All right, um, is there a way to turn down the lights? Okay, I wanted to um, end the talk by um, speaking a little bit about anorectal foreign bodies. So the deal with this is you can believe that any person who comes to you to have an anorectal foreign body diagnosed and removed has literally tried everything in their power 
to get it out. Okay? This is an extremely embarrassing situation for someone and these people are just desperate for your kindness and sensitivity. So more so than literally any other anorectal complaint, um, you're going to want to be especially sensitive to the people with this. And you know, you can kind of like file it away to laugh later about whatever creative writing exercise they did to tell you what happened. Um, you know, oh, I was changing this light bulb and um, yeah, then I was on a chair and the light bulb fell down and then like I lost my footing on the chair and I landed and the light bulb just went in. Or, yeah, I was sweeping the floor with the broom and like I just lost my footing and uh, amazingly the broom handle just went up my butt and broke <laughs> off. You know, so there's all kinds of stories that come through. And my recommendation is if you think the story is just like so funny that you can't even stand it for a minute, then what you need to do is you need to excuse yourself and go to a private area and get it out of your system and then go back and be compassionate with the patient um, because this is a time when they need you more than ever. So um, that is the story. Does anybody know what this might be? This is a two liter bottle of Diet Coke. Um, rectal foreign bodies can be ingested in two different ways. Well, ingested. They can arrive there in two different ways, from the top or from the bottom. So if you have um, uh, something like a fish bone or, you know, you could have eaten it and it would get down there, a toothpick. But most of these large items were put in usually deliberately um, for one reason or another. Um, if you see one of these and it's about 10 centimeters away, which means you could just about reach it, then this is one that would be reasonable for you to try to remove in the emergency department. And this is like the MacGyver thing, okay? Because you're going to be able to figure out a lot of different ways to try to get these things out. And there's not really one way that's going to work. Um, one thing that you can do, you can put a Foley inside if it's something where the opening is facing you. You might be able to put a Foley inside and uh, inflate the balloon and pull it out if it was a small opening in the bottle and you're going to have the person give them some benzos so that they can relax their muscles and they're going to have to be awake so that they can, like, they call it deliver the foreign body. She's like, hey, you're the proud parent of a baby two liter bottle of Coke or whatever. Um, but you want to make sure that you don't in, end up injuring yourself or the patient as a result of um, trying to get out the foreign body. So can you think of some items that you might not want to take out? Like glass. glass. Um, very sharp objects, knives. There's a lot of things and there's a, like um, body packers, you know, when they stuff all those condoms up there. You might want to be really careful about that and make sure that you're ready to, you know, have life support for them in case one of them ruptures on the way out as well. Um, so we can turn those off. Okay, this is a hairspray can. And the interesting thing about this is that, like, they sprayed it, right? Because you can see all this air um, proximal to the can. Now, this is going to be a particular challenge to get it out, right? Because if you look, um, what are you going to grab onto here?
So you might need to get some sort of clamps. Um, you might need to try to dilate their rectum and you know reach in, but then it's going to be all slippery. So this might be one that you can't get out in the emergency department. How about this one? This is the light bulb. See that, the little filament here? Um, this one is actually pretty close to the anal verge. And if you actually would give them some benzos, um, you might be able to get this one out if they were particularly cooperative um, by grabbing onto the little metal edge and just going very slowly and helping to dilate as you go. But because the glass in a light bulb is just so fragile, you, you might really think about not doing this yourself and sending them to the OR for this one. How about this? Yep, this is a vibrator. So here's all the controls, and this was you know, an erotic experience gone wrong um, because you, know, you have the sphincter, and when they got it where they wanted it, then it just kind of like sucked it in. And um, yeah, there it is. Um, all right, all right. Do you guys know what this is? Yes, pardon me, would you have any gray poupon? And like, yes, I do, in fact. Um, <laughs> The reason that I show this slide, <laughs> I know, it's kind of gross, huh? Um, one thing that you could do to get this out, even though it's glass, if you have some plaster, you might consider um, wrapping a Foley in plaster, okay? You stick it up in there and then let the plaster harden as long as you get it to be this wide, okay? And then when the plaster hardens, you can pull down on the Foley and um, make the thing come out. All right, so we can have the lights back again. Um, so just kind of in summary, we wanted to just go over how we're going to approach the anorectal exam and um, all of the anorectal complaints. First, we're going to ask them if there's pain. If there's pain, we want to find out if there's bleeding. If there's bleeding, and swelling, they probably have hemorrhoids. And if they don't have swelling, it's probably an anal fissure. Um, if they have pain but no bleeding, um, maybe there's swelling, they have some sort of an infectious process going on. Or if there's no swelling, maybe they have one of those type A personality disorders um, where they get uh, one of those problems or they have the rectal prolapse. Um, similarly, on the other side, um, no pain and um, bleeding, is going to be cancer, um, no pain, no bleeding, um, maybe it's one of the itch causes. And if there's a discharge, we want to be thinking about some kind of underlying problem with proctitis. And um, wanted to know if you have any questions. Uh -huh.